This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Well, this is the second of a series of special episodes where I interview former military war veterans now working in tech-related industries. And we reflect on their wartime after-action review experiences and similarities with Agile retrospectives. In this episode, I interview John Schneider, a fellow pivot Uh, working on the Java Spring team, he tells us a little bit about action items generated during after action reviews or AAR in a war zone. And he tells us how tactical cycles constantly changes and how the team collaborated and used the ingenuity to adapt and circumvent situations that were only apparently outside of their control. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah, cool, cool. And you're based in uh, Central, is it in Colorado? Where are you? I'm in Central Missouri, actually, which is um, just rural middle of nowhere. That's that's why I work for the spring team, so I can live out here. Cool. Nice. And John, you were uh, in the Army, is that correct? That's right. I spent about 12 years in the Army altogether, uh, close to nine as, a, as an officer um, the last nine years or so. Cool. What was your uh, your role? What were you doing? In the- sure. Yeah, I uh, I was commissioned originally as a, a transportation officer uh, in the Army Reserve. We, uh, my wife and I, made the decision to to stick to the Army Reserve so we could stick close to Missouri originally, not get moved around quite as much. Um, I didn't yet then know um, how my association with uh, reserve transportation would actually. Um, lead to me being uh, deployed more frequently than probably the active component is in some cases. Um, so uh, shortly out, out of school, I was assigned to a heavy equipment transport unit. Um, There's only six of them in the Army at the time. So uh, three of them in the Army Reserve, two in the National Guard. Uh, I think one in Nevada and one in North Carolina and one on the active component. Um, they needed three of those companies overseas at any given time. So you imagine there's six of these companies in the army. They need three of them at any given time. It was basically every other year flip uh, overseas just because of the kind of unit that it was. Um, this unit, it, it was, it was a big unit. So heavy equipment transporters, they haul tanks and artillery pieces, uh, large con- pieces of construction equipment, anything really big. These, these are very big vehicles, 40 tires on the trailer, um, hydraulically actuatable trailer, uh, just a huge tractor, bigger than anything you'll see on the road here in the, in the U.S. Um, and uh, there was a small outfit from each company, uh, a platoon size element, so about 60 people that ran um, what we call gun trucks, which were convoy escorts uh, for those, uh, those heavy equipment transporters. And that was my role. I was the platoon leader for the, uh, the gun truck or the, uh, the combat side of that, uh, that mission. So we, uh, we originally started in uh, M1151 uh, A1 uh, uh, um, Humvees, just Humvees, up-armored Humvees, and, uh, and, and it had 50 calibers or, uh, um, or uh, Mark 19 grenade launchers on top of them, and, and we escorted these convoys all, all over Iraq from the port in Kuwait to wherever the, the um, load was going anywhere in Iraq. So, Cool. And so how... How does the um, debriefing um, work in the in the army? How did it work for for those uh, the experience you had? Sure. Yeah. They 
the the army has a process they call an actor after action review or AAR. Um, in my platoon, like I mentioned, there were 60 people, um, roughly, uh, we, we had three squads of, uh, of gun truck packages. So these three squads could be accompanying three different convoys, um, in three completely different places in Iraq at any given point. Uh, each of those squads was ran by a, a staff sergeant. Um, and that staff sergeant would perform regular briefings before a convoy and after action reviews uh, after one to, to collect feedback. And the structure of them, I, I don't know how similar they are to a typical tech retro, but uh, they, uh, it, was, it was really kind of a three negative, three positive sort of um, framework that they did um, and tried to focus on, on you know, very specific technical detail. Cool. Um, was the, what kind of environment was it? Like, did people feel, um, feel free to speak up? Was it like a blame kind of like situation was, I feel sometimes uh, in retrospectives, people fear about blame, about being blamed about something. But I feel that when you're deployed, when it's like a war zone, um, is blame set aside? Is, uh, is it still like that fear of being blamed about something? Or is it more about how can we improve? How can we make this better? I think, I think the negatives were typically focused on what that individual squad can improve and on. And, and these are, these are, you know, 10 to 15 people that, um, that work together as a team constantly. Um, so they, uh, the army has a reputation for being a very top down organization. I think it's used as almost a, you know, an extreme example of a top down organization. My experience is quite the opposite actually, in that it's, it's, far more decentralized than any organization I've really been in uh, outside of it. Um, these squads were very independent. Um, if, if I was a platoon leader of three squads, they could be hundreds of miles apart. There's no, <laughs> there's no way I could really control their, their day-to-day um, operations. So yeah, they, they, these team members relied on one another. So this AR was for them. You know, it wasn't for, it wasn't for, uh, you know, for somebody else to, to review their performance, it was for them to get better and to survive together. Cool. Do you have any story or any detail that you can share with the audience of one of those? I, I think I, I give you two examples of where um, uh, negative or I, I guess, you know, things that we can improve on comments coming out of AARs um, changed our tactics in a significant way. Um, so the first one um, comes from, you know, the, the, the tactical environments in Iraq changed quite a bit over the years. Um, the convoys on the road were one of the most dangerous places to be. Um, it's kind of in some ways the soft underbelly of, of, the, uh, of our, our environment over there. Um, so convoys were attacked more frequently than, say, posts were, in a, in, at least in an effective way. Um, so we knew that we were at substantial risk. The uh, early on in the war, um, convoys were um, were targeted with um, pressure plate expo- or improvised explosive devices. We call those IEDs. It was as simple as you know somebody getting out there and digging digging a hole in the road and placing a, a usually like a one five five artillery round um, with some pressure plate trigger in the road and then just burying it again. And so a truck that ran over it, it's just basically like a mine, you know, think of an artillery round as a mine. That's kind of how it would work. But as time went on, um, you know, we got more and more effective at uh, identifying people, placing things in the road and, and uh, usually, you know, air support from above would, would um, eliminate that threat. So 
Um, so tactics would shift, you know, and, and, you know, they moved to um, remotely detonated devices, you know, in different ways. They would move to um, devices triggered by a command wire or via a, a radio of some sort, a garage door opener, an RC car adapter, whatever it would be. Um, one particularly deadly form of IED it actually had its own name called an explosively formed projectile. These were uh, devices that um, they had a shape charge that would take uh, a molten copper plate and turn it into essentially, or a, a copper plate and turn it into a molten sphere of copper, if you can imagine this flying through the air. And it could just punch right through uh, the armor of our, our vehicles. So that was really deadly to us. Um, Explosively formed projectiles um, were, it took a lot of sophistication to build something like that. Um, so they were typically really well hidden, um, you know, in a way that just made it hard to see on the side of the road. So they, they oftentimes hid them in, uh, in rock, in, encased in concrete um, in a way that made them appear like they were a rock, um, just like a rock along the side of the road. And they'd be placed kind of alongside other rocks. Um, so we kind of knew that this was this was the problem, but it's still they're hard to spot, right? It just looks like a regular rock. Um, so somebody figured out um, that if you looked at a pile of rocks like this uh, through a pair of thermal binoculars, that um, that the explosively formed projectile would look a little hotter than the average rock because uh, it had that all that copper inside of it. Um, so you could basically identify a fake rock you know, via thermal binoculars. The trouble was, uh, of course, that um, if thermal binoculars can't see through glass um, and, you know, you want your gunner to be below the, the level of the turrets so they don't get uh, shot by a sniper. So this is kind of this chicken and egg problem. Do I get blown up by an EFP or do I get shot by a sniper? What do we do about this? Um, and we didn't really have a resolution to it for a while and our teams were talking and, and um, what they, what we found is that, um, well, at that time, PlayStation portables were a really common thing for troops to have on the ground. Just like it was just a fad at the time. A couple of our squads came up with a device that um, they uh, they could mount the thermal binoculars to the outside of the truck and use regular VGA cables to tie it to their PlayStation portable, um, and then use an extra turret joystick that we found um, to move the binoculars left and right. Um, and that's what we used. Um, to identify um, explosively formed projectiles. So using the PlayStation Portable. Nice. Which was, nice. was guaranteed to be one in every truck, you know. Um, nice. I think it's an example of where like a review comment like made some actionable change to our tactic on the ground without having to go through the whole defense acquisition process and some contractor building an actual device for this. You're just able to fabric awesome. something. In. So, so the, the, the teams on the floor had uh, a sense of agency they could like change and try yeah. things and they just yeah. reflected on some of that some of that input and was that across you said multiple teams that uh, like a different team found out about the thermals and this team came up with the playstation and how did they communicate between each other absolutely i mean i would say there was you know a little bit of contribution from all the teams to kind of build the final device but um you know we kind of prototyped it and ran it for a little bit made some modifications and then, and then distributed it to the rest of the trucks later. Um, Fantastic so, story. That, that was a really interesting, I think, uh, case there, you know, review comments coming out saying, you know, we need, we need to do something about this particular tactic. 
And did that information go up the ladder? Like, did, uh... it did you know it? It got up to it. It didn't go as high as you'd think. I mean, um, it probably got up to our battalion organization, so it may have influenced a couple gun truck companies, but didn't didn't go much further beyond that. I don't think. And then, of course, tactics shifted again. Um, it's you know these tactical cycles were relatively short, actually a year or two at a time. So, um, so when you say tactical cycle, you mean then like stuff on the floor changes again? Yeah, what, what you that's right. Yeah, the the um, the you know finding certain devices to be ineffective, the uh, enemy tactic would change in some way, um, in a substantial way. So the plan doesn't survive contact. That's right. Around. Yeah, ultimately, it's, it's, there was an earlier incarnation of this similar approach where um, their uh, explosive, explosives were being detonated uh, via infrared sensor that was looking for engine heat signatures. And it would, so it was targeted to, you know, to hit the passenger side of the vehicle when it saw a heat signature. And so, you know, again, a similar, you know, um, really scrappy team came up with just, uh, we're just going to put a pole on the front um, of the, uh, of the truck and we'll run three or four engine glow plugs in a box at the end of the pole. And we'll just put it like 10 feet out in front of our truck. And so they would detonate the explosive early. We called that a rhino. Um, and that, that ta- so then, you know, then there's a shift of tactic. Well, we got to target it back 10 feet further, you know? And so just, there's this constant back and forth of uh, tactical change and response. I see an analogy with like the way agile works and how you iterate over over a solution and stuff changes. Obviously, yes. very different stakes, yes. uh, but it's it's interesting how we need to adapt in in our day to day job here. Uh, yes. Even though as a as IT uh, specialist and now on the floor, um, really powerful, interesting story. Um, John, you said yet uh, another yet. Yeah, there's there's one other thing I think came out of uh, the ARs quite a bit, and I think did influence. Um, acquisition a little higher up. Um, I mentioned before I was a transportation officer and I belonged to a transportation company that donated a platoon to perform gun truck missions. And there were other uh, infantry companies originally that performed the exact same mission. In fact, uh, my platoon was responsible. We had three squads of gun trucks and we were responsible for escorting up to nine uh, squads of heavy equipment transporters. Well, the math doesn't work out there, right? If, uh, if more than three of those heavy equipment transporters are on the road at any given time, I can't do all of them. I can only do three of them. Um, so we were pretty much 100% task out all, the whole time. Um, so any of the slack that uh, my platoon could pick, couldn't pick up was just picked up by one of these infantry companies performing the same mission. So exactly the same trucks, exactly the same uh, roads, the vehicles being escorted, everything's the same. Uh, but at the time, the Army had um, two systems two computer systems to track the location of forces on the ground. One was called the blue force tracker and it was used by combat units like infantry units. Um, and that could, you could see on a computer screen in your truck, the location of enemy forces that were known, which basically none in this case, uh, and friendly forces, friendly combat forces, helicopters, tanks, snipers, um, infantry units, things like that in the ground. Um, the, logistics units so transportation fell under you know army logistics they were uh sourced with a computer system called a movement tracking system which only showed on the map logistics assets um now you know you know what i was mentioning tactics before um as we're 
moving a convoy down the road, you'd pass underneath bridge overpasses. Um, and for a time, um, it was uh, popular for insurgents to attempt to drop, uh, especially Russian RKG grenades on top of uh, our heads from, uh, from bridge overpasses. Um, so if we're going to go under a bridge, the lead gun truck would usually flare out and spotlight the bridge. You would just put a bright spotlight on top of the whole bridge and just, and just look for people up there. Um, and each gun truck would do that as it went by. So it's looking for, for people up there that are a threat. Well, if you imagine a, a you know, a bridge is kind of a higher, you know, uh, location, uh, in an otherwise flat terrain. And so, um, it was a favored place for snipers as well to sit. Um, if there was going to just be a sniper sitting somewhere waiting for enemy activity, a bridge was a good place to be. Well, we don't want to spotlight a sniper. Um, because it basically reveals their location. They have to move. They're not happy about that. Um, and of course, we can assume if there's a sniper on a bridge that there's not going to be somebody else up there um, that means us harm. So we prefer to just not spotlight them. So, so you meant like one of, a friendly a friendly sniper. Is that right? That's correct, yes. One of your right. Yes. Friendly sniper, yes. <laughs> Clear difference. <laughs> um, the, uh, so the movement tracking system didn't show us the locations of snipers. That was not helpful to us. Uh, Blue Force Tracker did. Um, so yeah, you know, our squads would say, you know, we want, we want, uh, we want blue force trackers. We want blue force trackers. Um, but we couldn't get them. You know, the army acquisition process failed us there. It says, you know, you're a logistics unit versus a combat unit. You get this and that instead of that. Um, so we coordinated amongst ourselves. We, we of course went over to the blue force tracker contractors repair shop at various places throughout Iraq and tried to acquire ourselves new systems. And they would have just, plenty of equipment, you know, um, just replacement parts, whole systems available, but they couldn't give one to us because we didn't have the right unit designation. Uh, they did say we can, we can always swap one for one, a bad part for a good part. And so we had our solution then. Um, uh, most nights when uh, I would put uh, a convoy down uh, or we, we would just go and uh, search in dumpsters um, for broken parts um, and place a bad part on an otherwise good system and take the truck in and have it replaced and set that part aside. And if you do that enough times, you can build up kind of essentially from nothing, um, the full complement of a uh, blue force tracker system. So um, we did that a couple times, actually we did that. And then the command team changed and they reported the, the, the fact that we had these, you know, as, as a, a property asset in, in the company and they'd be taken away from us and we'd have to do it again. Um, and we did this a few cycles before, I think, um, ultimately, um, higher headquarters understood the need for them. Cool. And so the, the trigger there was coming out of one of the, one of the debriefings and then the, uh, the ideas, when were they brainstorming? Right. They're like not, they're, it's not that... obvious why we would need them. You know, I don't, you'd say, you'd think, well, you're just moving along the road from point to point. What's the purpose of you having this kind of thing? So it's the, it's the intricate detail of, you know, I need to be able to spotlight for grenades being dropped on my head, but there's a potentially a friendly sniper. It's a nuanced, you know, a tactical situation that's, that's not apparent to, you know, the 50,000 foot view, but the situation. Awesome. Um, yeah. This is a great, great story, great insights. It's, um, it's also, I think, a big reason why I think as leaders, like, you know, as a lieutenant, uh, it was important for me to be, to rotate amongst the squads and be present with them 
uh, on the ground, not taking over the mission, not, I would say this E6 staff sergeant is still responsible for this convoy when I'm participating in it, but just to be present with them and so that you really understand um, what they're going through and what their, their needs are uh, on a more detailed level. Um, and that's a, that's a principle, again, I haven't found as common outside of the Army, the idea that you lead from the front um, as, as an organizational leader. So, Awesome. Uh, this is really powerful, really interesting conversation. John, is there anything else you want to, to share? I don't think so, unless you have any, any questions on those things. That's, uh, those are the two examples I really had in mind anyway. So. Uh, no, I think this is really good. Um, now that you asked me, maybe like uh, one, uh, one, one question I have is uh, my friend in the Marine said they were doing uh, school circles uh, to do these debriefings in the, in the Marines. How hmm. was the logistic for the, for the Army? Were you doing it in a room? So were you doing hmm. it right after you would come back? Um, a little bit of maybe color around like yeah. uh, sitting around a table, like on the ground, that kind of like. No, it'd always be standing, uh, standing out in the open somewhere, uh, usually just um, beside the trucks in a, in a yard somewhere uh, after we've fully taken everything down. So after you would come back from one of the field missions. Right, immediately after that, yeah, before anybody's released um, to do their other things, because then people tend to scatter a bit, so start forgetting details. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, would you say, would you ever skip one of those debriefings or was it kind of like a... Uh, um, you know, all through training, it's just, uh, I th through training, it's just emphasized that this is just something that you do. It feels a little ridiculous, honestly, in training sometimes. You just think, ugh, you know, you're going through this exercise. It can feel a little ridiculous in practice too, I think sometimes. But, um, but you, you know, it's a habit and you... Um, and you make it a habit and you continue to do that. And a couple of good things can come out of habits like that. Like, like these things I said, you're, um, you know, um, it's, it's, you never know what's, what's going to come out of them. So cool. Awesome. John, this is really interesting, really fun. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, thank you. I appreciate what you do, what anyone in the military does. So, Thank you. I'm, for... I'm happy to share. I know there's not a lot of information about uh, what the daily life was on the ground there, especially in these last two conflicts. So um, yeah, it's good, good for folks to understand, I think. Yeah, totally. So can a civilian give you the military salute or is that ridiculous? <laughs> I'm curious what you would try. It's it, the salute looks, ah, that's what I thought you might do. Yeah. The, the salute looks uh, very I'm, I'm, I'm from Italy. So I think I see, it's, yes. Yes. <laughs> really powerful examples and stories by John. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm planning to do a few more interviews. There is like a F-18 pilot that will talk uh, with us about uh, similar, similar topics. If you know of people that work outside of the tech industry, in the military, or for example, firefighting that can tell us a little bit about the briefings in their fields. That'll be probably interesting for us facilitators to use as examples and to reflect on where some of the habits we, we have in our retrospective come from. And it's really interesting to reflect about those higher stake environments. Well, thank you so much for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. 
Until next time.